My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Welcome back, and thanks for being with us. This week on the show, Emil Amos of the Drifter Sympathy Podcast. He is our, quote, label mate on the TalkHouse Podcast Network, and we're so excited to have him on. You might know Emil from his work with bands like Ohm, Grails, Holy Sons, or the records he releases under his own name, like Zone Black, which is out now on Drag City. His latest album of library-style sounds, synthy 80 soundtracks, hip-hop beat-making, ambient music, and more. All in all, it evokes a kind of mythic 1970s, and that is an area we linger on a lot in this conversation. You may also know Emil from his many appearances on the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, which is a podcast I listen to a lot and enjoy. And uh, it was, I knew that from his appearances on that show that we'd be able to have a kind of heady, spaced out conversation, and he was down. I'm so glad that we were able to get this taped. We've been talking about doing it for a while, and here it is. On September 22nd, Emil's band Grails releases their brand new album, Anches and Mont. Ahead of that album's release, we were able to discuss his life in music, the virtue of of doing it on your own, a sort of crash course in loner style creativity, and a lot more. But before we roll tape on our conversation, I wanted to let you know I will be in Los Angeles on September 23rd and the 30th. On the 23rd, you can catch me with Hothelay and Psychic Temple at Gold Diggers in East Hollywood. I'll be playing a set with my band JPW. On September 30th, we'll be hosting a live taping of Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions at Manly P. Hall's Philosophical Research Society. We'll be joined by Matt Marble discussing his fantastic book about Arthur Russell and how esoteric practices informed his musical work. That book is called Buddhist Bubblegum, and I recommend you pick up a copy from the PRS bookstore, which you can find online, and you'll find, of course, ticket links and more at Aquarium Drunkard. I hope you will come out and join us for one of these shows. I'm really looking forward to getting out there. All right, Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions is brought to you by its Patreon supporters. If you want to join those who are supporting independent cultural work, like so many do, please head over to our Patreon page where you can chip in and we appreciate your support. All right, let's get into it. Emil Amos on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I will speak with you a little bit more on the other side.
Well, Emil Amos, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. We've been talking about doing this forever. I'm glad we're finally making it happen. Yeah, I actually can't remember how far this is. This has gone back, but I guess now our podcasts share a network. That's right. We're like label mates. Uh, <laughs> yeah, your show, Drifter Sympathy, was before we started rolling tape. I think we were kicking it around back and forth, but you started it in around, was it, it was around 2016? Yeah, I was in New York and I, um, I think I just wanted to, to simplify it, I guess, uh, when you release records, you're like over and over and over kind of yelling into like this, either a void or a compartment <laughs> with the same people over and over. And you, you're like, I've got another one now. I've got another one. And you're just kind of showing it to the same group of people. And with, you know, the way press has sort of run its course on the internet, uh, everything is kind yeah. of um, been funneled down these tiny little channels that, that you feel a little bit um, sometimes powerless to expand and get out to the people that you want to get to so there was there was a point at which i think i was like you know music's just not really working it's like sure it, it's just sounds like music and people compartmentalize music so quickly and and so extremely they don't um experience it like it's like this brand new thing ever and and the story of sort of growing up and getting into the underground and various aspects of the, with my guru and things like that, I was sort of like, um, th there was something more universal about it, but I didn't think of it that way or know if it was, I just was like, I wanted to write a book. Basically. I didn't want to just keep playing a guitar solo. They, and they seemed like completely right. different things. And, and the, the book would bring me a type of, happiness that i just couldn't um quite find in in music itself you know so it was the podcast was basically a way of just kind of getting out of the the sort of wheel that you found yourself stuck running basically i think so i think at first in the old days um in the very old days early 90s chapel hill i think the the true like goal for all of our friends and and even the older kids here that were first making, you know, the Arches of the Loaf single or the, all, you know, all the all the bands like the, their mentality was just to make a seven inch. And I really swear to God, that's all we kind of imagined. Like that was the tip shop, sure. you know. And so, as a kid, you know, we made our own cassettes just like mac and and the merge people down at kinko's in fact mac actually worked at the kinko's uh before school kids and and that that whole idea that sort of little family was just already sort of fully realized we i don't think we really ever thought you know like most underground people that anybody would ever get on tv or any of that kind of stuff and we really didn't care so there was this idea that just getting a seven inch out was like basically as good as the Beatles. And sure. Then fast forward to what you're asking me, which is like when you've had uh 40, 50 records out, <clears throat> you do hit a little bit of an emotional wall 
where you're like, I still feel like I'm evolving, I'm I'm growing, and I want to. I have so much curiosity, but sometimes you don't feel like it's. Um, you know, you you you're, you don't feel like you're talking to really anyone sometimes, especially with the distance of the internet. It's just floating out, and yeah, and the thing about the underground that I like to sort of reassert all the time that I think resonates with certain people is that it was a family. It was, we, we were part of something that you don't acknowledge you're part of the family at first. It's like very Lord of the flies, you know, you kind of, um, there's a lot of competition when you're young and there's a lot of feeling pitted against other bands and people and, and people who also want the same thing. And then as you grow older together you start to realize that you're all in this together and and the underground had that fully formed kind of um family aspect that that is part of what i think the podcast is you know talks a lot about missing that a lot after after the nirvana yeah. thing happened you know it just, it just the, a lot of the personal sort of family aspect eroded and um and anyway so I think the podcast had to be born to sort of get air some of those grievances. And, and then that accidentally sort of helped form a new family because now I have all these people and friends and just new, new listeners that, that understand it, always understood it. And I didn't know them. Like, for example, like, uh, the, a couple of guys in Wilco reached out to me recently, this guy, Pat, um yeah pat sansone he's so fucking cool and he invited me out to a show of theirs and you know i'd never seen wilco so it's kind of like the reverse aspect too of of like that was a part of the family that i didn't know yet but but when i went out and watched them i just i it felt so familiar it felt so like there were so many things about sort of what we'd done with Grails that I saw in in Wilco, obviously on a much larger level, but the, the the level of trust that they have with their fans and the way that the the audience kind of gets a certain amount of familiar material, but then they just do whatever they want to do and they're allowed to do that. And and it's just such a beautiful interchange. But like yeah. I only met him because he heard the podcast and reached out to me. And then and then like the family comes together so it's kind of proven its worth over time yeah no that's great that's great and talk about a crew of guys like to use wilco as a as an example many of whom their work in music stretches back to similar days as your own you know what i mean like mm -hmm. coming up in their own in their own regional scenes and somebody as disparate as Nels Klein, who's like this ECM, you know, guitar jazz uh, outsider guy, you know, but finding such a comfortable position within something like Wilco. It, to me, what I really loved about what I love about the podcast and what's really inspirational about it to me, it was one of the shows that made me think that there is a uh, room for more variety in music podcasting and that there's room for things that don't um fit neatly into the sort of obviously npr makes great you know journalism from you know time to time of course but you love that but 
it's funny how podcasting ended up sort of falling into very similar all the shows having this sort of overlapping feel whereas uh-huh. your show that's not the case at all it feels like an art project and it feels like a dj set as much as it is uh you know a sort of history or 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 a narrative exploration does that track with you yeah i think um part of getting a little bit older and and wanting to uh find that family again is that inevitably you know you're starting you got to trick yourself a little bit into not thinking you're really going to be a host you know what i mean because that's just too much pressure psychologically and and you do have to get in a a mood, you know, almost like, almost like you picture Tom Waits in the the opening of Down by Law as the DJ. Like you got to get in the mood because lead baby Sims, yeah. <laughs> it's like you're not there, or at least I was like, I can't, I can't walk into the situation really thinking I'm going to talk about myself. I need to get, um, yeah, get kind of, you know, like it was part of the flex, you know, of 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 like feeling a little bit more comfortable in yourself is that like, I want to talk about other people and I had enough ammunition. I mean, our, our job being in the band grails was like, um, it was very much some sort of, I don't know. There's kind of like a low maxian uh, aspect to, to sort of sure. tra- traveling around and trying to find these things that were, completely discarded um for i mean that's what you do you know and so um i think that that there's a high there's like a liberation uh, of getting outside of yourself that is really redeeming and that seemed like just a solid thing that i could share with people because i'd gotten to a point in my life where i was like you know i wasn't really trying to hide my influences like you can you can see with certain artists they really don't want to share these secret things that they listen to but like it it just seemed like a liberating point i'd gotten this far in my life i had survived (laughs) you know all all this sort of perilous decades drug damage and things like that that you know a lot of risk risky behavior and and i had kind of i was celebrating having landed on my feet which i think is a big part of the resonance for people who have been through the shit, you know, and then um, talking about other people, but was, was really important, but there's an extra aspect. I feel like you're getting at that is really kind of like a complicated thing. You can only realize in, in later in life is that I gave myself fully to something my my life was just like a lot of these people I like to talk about. I, I gave my life to this thing. Um, a, as a child, I don't think I knew exactly what I was getting into. I probably thought it was about me. But once you go all the fucking way and you, you give yourself completely to art and the sort of this dialogue, you know, that you're part of, whether you like it or not... Um, a transformation does occur at some point where you you sort of you sort of become in, in into the fabric. I'm just like a a high digger, sort of like you become you're in the story. You're in the story of the yeah. world, you know. And, yeah. But you have to give yourself so completely to kind of melt into the picture and become a universal 
sort of conduit to some degree. And, and so maybe that took all of that risk and it took all of that confusion and dedication. But, but I think at the time as a kid, going back to the very beginning, I think I really thought that people like Lou Barlow were, were on stage and I was watching them and I was like, I was like, that is the guy. Like, I want to be like him. I want to do what he's doing. And at some point, you kind of don't notice that you are just, you are like him. You are doing the same thing, you know, and you have your own, you have your own unique imprint upon this, this entire dialogue and you have your own sound and you have your own, looking back, I can see now that that level of um, individuality that, that you can, maybe you are saying you objectively can kind of sense and feel it's like that, that is why the podcast doesn't sound the same to you as the other things, because I just, I was haphazard. I didn't, I didn't like pay attention to anything else. I didn't compare. I didn't study. I didn't, I've told people before, like, I improv it all. And right. pe- people laugh at me. They're like, what are you <laughs> fucking insane? Like, like they think I wrote it all down and I'm reading it. Like that seems crazy. Like, I mean, people do that, you know, that's, that's a real, <laughs> that's a real way that it goes. <laughs> I just, that is such a fundamental difference. You know, it's like that, that is such a, um, yeah, yeah. You know, I was just listening to the episode where you're talking about Alan Hole and how Alan Hole, he heard, you know, the Beatles and John Lennon, and he was like, unlike so many mm-hmm. people who engage with music and think that it's some special skill that they have, the Beatles, that I will never have, he basically thought the opposite, but it feels like it's kind of like what you're talking about, that sense of giving yourself, because it's one thing to be like oasis about it or whatever, right? And be Uh like, we're the best fucking rock band since the (laughs) Beatles or whatever. It's one thing to be like that, like cocky and full of yourself about it. It's another thing to be like Alan Hall and be like, John Lennon is a human who wrote those songs Uh and, and stood up for things that resonate with me. I could do that too, you know? And it's sort of like by uh, giving himself permission to do what John Lennon's doing, what he came up with doesn't actually sound like John Lennon. You know what I mean? It has its own thing. But I think it's all part of that. It's To me, it feels like that's something you're tracing throughout the show, you know, that sense of when you give yourself over to it, um, it's going to end up having a unique shape and only look like something not one person could could really create. Does that does that resonate with you? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that um that's what you're that's what I'm hearing from you too is is like you listened to it and you got something unusual out of it. Like why why does this not feel of of the same structure or like sure. why why was is this person not aspirationally involved in the same industry and and no they weren't they, the, this person is literally just documenting the room the, the what happened in, inside this room that they're sitting in they're just they're literally just field recording 
their own implosions. You know what I mean? So sure, sure. I, I kind of like I sort of know what I want to get across emotionally, and I don't really know exactly what I'm going to say. I usually have like a little bit of a trick where I. I've got some alcohol and I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm opening it. You can hear me opening it. And like yeah. that, that moment right there where the, where it hits my brain is usually always just the golden zone. Like if I drink too much or if I'm totally sober, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel the same, but there's something right in that zone where I know the emotional target. I just don't know what I'm going to say at all, but then I have to, you know, trust myself. And that's all the kids that, that talk to me on the road or on the internet or whatever. A lot of people seem to be looking for that way to give themselves that kind of permission. And I do, I mean, I try as hard as I can to sort of, sort of, you know, display by example, but also just be like, you sort of just have to let yourself do that. Like you can't, yeah. You you can't build that compartment that you're supposed to like climb up into and then just become it. Like it's it's about being as fucked up as you really are, you know. And I yeah. think that that's just an entertainerist like lie that has really fucked up most of society is you just got people trying to be something else and like none of us want to fucking hear that, dude. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? Yeah, somehow that that gets yeah that that is expressed in the work in a negative way for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think there's a time to be negative, and there's there's sure. a, a way in which we really love to see human beings go there. Um, but but now you know we become so over aware of like toxicity in general, and I think that's totally totally fair and i and i don't like to see it in myself either i don't think it really shows up in the show i see it i see it no. in my life but like uh i think i think in general we do love to see someone just you know give the man the finger you know and and that, that's there's a really important kind of liberation in seeing an older kid do it and then just you know finding the those moments in your life where you're like yes it's true i don't need to go to chemistry class. Like I just, I didn't need that. You know, I didn't need that teacher like berating me. I didn't need everybody cutting me down. I, I didn't need everybody believing that I need to like become this um, sort of, sort of like uh, some sort of societal tool that like, yeah. I, I, I rejected early, early on. I mean, I was, I was such a stubborn selfish little kid that that i just everything was narrated through a prism of like was you know as long as i can get away from what the man wants me to do i was so focused sure. on that and so um i think that that achieving some sort of healthy balance and like you know having not died and being someone that can kind of articulate themselves i think people can see that they they identify in themselves this that it's going to be okay. I think that's one of the main, main things young people can get from it, you know? Yeah, for sure. 
I wanted to talk with you about a little bit about the forthcoming record, uh, uh, Zone Black, which I was really psyched to see Lonely Man theme from the Incredible Hulk <laughs> TV series cited as a reference point to some of the music on this. Um, I'm sh- I'm sure it's similar for you, but when I think back on that theme, wow, it really is emotionally powerful and and mournful in a way that like these modern you know comic book <laughs> movies are not capturing the same level of pathos do you know what i mean yeah i think i mean you know just just for a point of reference like the 70s in the 80s was so disgusting and like uncool and like uninteresting to us as kids like sure when people would talk about the 70s back in the day um I mean, you just you just kind of felt a kind of revulsion, like back. You were in the allergic day. to it, yeah. Yeah, the eighties were like it was so kind of like there's so much more like hyper color and like like we felt our our generation was really like pushing forward, whether we were or not. I mean, a lot of it was total bullshit, I'm sure. And and but like we had breakdancing and these things that just felt like super new, you know? And when you saw a picture of the seventies, generally it was like that one basketball coach kind of vibe with the huge, uh, sideburns and like the burlap Brown jacket and the shitty haircut. And you were like, what were they doing? What was that all about? You, you kind of despise the seventies. And so I think as the, the nineties wore out and the two thousands got going, it was right about the two thousands where I think, um our generation started to rescue the 70s into uh kind of like a more of a pop culture uh real estate that you can use we're kind of rediscovering our memories from that time and and it was sort of um it was sort of a recontextualization uh, generation wide you know i felt like we were all sort of starting to see the 70s for all the good things that it was because when we were growing up, all you heard about was ODs and like just, you know, all my sure. parents, friends dying and shit, you know? And so um, now I think we, we think of the seventies as like this incredible fantasy land, which is so opposite. Um, but I think that that lonely man theme and a lot of those seventies technological um, kind of referential aspects, um, whether it's like, you know, Burt Sugarman's Midnight Special or whatever the fuck, you know, just like yeah. the way music was presented, whether it's the Carpenters or Gong, you know, it's like the seventies weirdly ended up being possibly the most interesting decade, which is kind of insane, you know, with the sixties and eighties on either side, you know? Yeah. No kidding. I think about the seventies as it really is sort of, all my favorite stuff from like Eno to, you know, to me, like the, the, the records the Beach Boys are doing in the 70s end up being so much more interesting, you know, uh, uh-huh. than they're often given credit for. But even just sort of like, even just going back, and I know you're somebody who digs like, you know, cult movie soundtracks and stuff like that. Even just realizing that you can dig through that world that, even these works of art that were like B level or C level or, you know, lower, I don't know. Um, so often the work that was generated for those ends up having this 
really interesting quality in the present day. And I think that another thing I appreciate about your podcast and about your approach to art in general is the way you seem to play with the concept of time when you're thinking about music, right? Like, because you're not talking necessarily about the 70s as it really was. You're talking about the 70s as it has been, to use the term you used, like rescued, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. our, our personal autobiography and our personal sense memories play such a relationship in nostalgia when it comes to music like that. I really do feel like music is this pathway to a kind of time travel, you know, for Mm -hmm. our, our minds. And to me, that's something that when you are juxtaposing those sounds against stuff like, I know Midnight Express is also cited and Firestarter. Mm -hmm. When I think about the soundtrack of my early youth, you know, the sound of, john carpenter movies or Mm -hmm. the terminator 2 theme song you know it's like that stuff really does get baked in were you somebody who paid attention to music in movies when you were a kid i don't think that we knew what was going on i i think risky business is a great example you know it's like i don't think we had any understanding that that sex scene on the subway was was largely defined by that tangerine dream song you know what i mean sure like we were more just like i was just so scared i was gonna get caught watching it and and that fear (laughs) I, i mean i've talked about that before but that fear it was such a potent cocktail you know and 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 scared the fuck out of me and that music was a big part of that but i didn't have the awareness yet um plus like my mom was single on those days and dating all sorts of just like the most like cheese ball new age dudes with the beret and the little hoop earring thing like that that right that whole like crystal like like new age thing was so repulsive to all of us just to be like I mean, I'm talking across the board, you know, like everybody hated that shit who was young, you know, no one got with it back then. And that was the domain of old, lonely freaks, you know, to to kids, you know. (laughs) And so that's just the way it was. Um, So I think when electronic music kind of sort of rang out, in those early scenes and in Hollywood too, you know, I mean, there's a lot of money surrounding this. You didn't identify with the machinery behind the curtain at that age, you know? So, so I think a lot of it just didn't seem like it was ours. You know what I mean? Like, like sure. Tangerine dream with those extremely expensive, massive modular systems. That was an elitist, you know, reality. And, and I don't think some young little four track skateboarding punk, like really saw any, saw themselves in that, you know, but yeah, but that's yeah. the rescuing, right? That's the rescuing of your own life as you lived in that time and recontextualizing. Um, you're you're definitely onto something really interesting there. Like if you watch crowds um, at shows, you'll notice like there's a really healthy amount of them, like a big percentage of them that are kind of singing along and and like hearing the music in their heads more than what's happening on stage sure and if you kind of zone into that you smoke a little too much pot it's really really strange to watch because you start to realize that people are sort of more in touch with like their inner 
their inner um, descriptive, you know, experience than like what might be scientifically happening outside of it. So, you know, so when you're watching people, if it, you know, if you've ever seen like a, just a horrendous band or whatever, that's, that's like having this incredible interaction with, with their fans. Sure. you, You get to a point where you're like, well, so does, does any of this really matter? I mean, we know it doesn't because in so many ways because of the Beatles were the first to get there and they were like, you guys aren't even listening and they quit. You know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> they just were like, yeah. you're literally, you don't even care what's happening on stage. And so as somebody who um, my whole job, my assumed job at least, was to like get down to the science of music, you know, because it is – it is a science. I work essentially in a lab and I'm like dissecting this stuff with a microscope, you know, and the deeper I go and and the, the better I try to get at it, it, it's always haunting me. Right. That, that like maybe nobody cares if that tambourine is like 15 milliseconds behind the beat in that particular way. But you're, you're, you're assuming that like the unconscious experiences these things and the unconscious understands them, but you're haunted by the fact that that may not also be true, that people are just hearing what they want to hear in their heads and not what's actually happening on the stage. So I think when we get into the, the rescuing of the seventies and we get into the dissection of the lonely man theme and we get into the risky business music stuff you got to wonder if anyone's really getting down to what's really interesting about these things scientifically, or if people are just playing around with it because it's kind of fun and like they're, they're rescuing their version of things, but they're not really like, they're not really learning as a culture from our mistakes. Does that make sense at all? Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. That makes sense. Yeah, and it makes me think about how it's 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 hard to so much of what you're talking about is just the the sort of unquantifiable aspects of what happens when we listen to music. And mm-hmm. and you know, to me that's something that when that comes up on this show and it comes up often enough because it's a real interest of mine, I think um what somebody is experiencing in their head. Mm is is this this amazing thing and you can hear i'm sure you've had this happen right where like you've heard a song for however many times 
and hated it each time, right? Mm -hmm. And then one day you hear part of it and all of a sudden you don't hate that song anymore. Or you know what I mean? Or it like the feeling you have about the song turns to something other than just revulsion. Does that, has that ever happened to you? You know what I mean? I mean, well, you just sort of described the recontextualizing of the new age and of yacht rock and as our, our generation. I mean, we were the ones that weathered it like from all of all of this (laughs) stuff that, yeah, no, all of this stuff that I love. Right. Like I totally dig those sounds and I know what you mean. Like, but I didn't have to live through the, the nineties new, when I watch those pure moods commercials, it's just, uh, it's just gentle '90s nostalgia for me. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I don't bear the the scars of the culture wars you fought. You know what I mean? Oh, I got you. Yeah, I, it's so funny you mentioned that because uh, I'm kind of forming like this new new band that I I feel like m- might should be called some sort of you know pure mood. Like just even have the fucking phone number on the cover of the record and shit. I love it. I love it. <laughs> But because- yeah, so 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 yeah, what you're talking about the 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 sort of rescuing there, it's like there's a kind of editing and collage art too to what you're talking about. I feel like, yeah, there is. I mean, don't 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 get in your head that I'm like a hater when I'm saying that the crowd is not not seeing what is necessarily going on on stage. I mean, sure, I'm, sure. I'm not I'm not trying to differentiate it in a way that's like. Um, in some way like fully skeptical or something it's more it's more that like my job is to get down to the science of it and make the thing right and then and then the thing is supposed to transport the brain right you're supposed to, you're supposed yeah. to be learning about what changes brain chemistry so when you hear that rupert holmes like yacht rock banger and you're like it makes you feel so fucking good you you ask yourself you know what what the fuck is that you know like i just got right. transported into a place that i don't even know what that is about like that particular feeling i mean you get a lot of it from from like hip hop and instrumental music kind of transports you to a place that's not necessarily real like it's not sure. you know like at least rupert holmes is talking about being cheated on like that's understandable um, he's channeling the sad divorcees, like, you know, energy and they're banging the steering wheel and that all makes sense. Like, but Brian, Eno was a big part of like, since you mentioned him, he was a big part of trying to extricate song form from that kind of literal world. And he really wanted to sort of just take it out of any sort of literal interpretation so that the words really weren't the focal point. They were just part of the dressing, you know? And I think that along the way we is, especially in the seventies, I think we created a fantasy world uh, with the, the birth of like sort of independent cinema and everything. We, we sort of yeah. like, we sort of warped the way you with with drugs especially too in a very easy rider way we sort of warped the way that you dove across the chasm as a viewer and and holy mountain you know like things just yeah started yeah. to melt into a completely different mutation right and right. so we're right. coming to that that language really late in the game in 2023 i mean this is pretty late you know yeah yeah so part of my job 
would be also to kind of like rescue some of the confusion and mystique that we were feeling by not understanding that stuff and bring that back into an environment now where everything is so able to doubt that you can't really experience much psychedelic hallucination in music. Like everything right. is so dialed and pre-mixed that when you hear music now, it just doesn't like, it doesn't fuck with your brain. You know, it, it, so, so a lot of this stuff that we're talking about on zone black or that's returning to some sort of seventies, um, template is just trying to get back to some of that, you know, there's levels within the acid trip where you, you literally, you don't even remember like how you got in the corner of that room and why you're like digging in the carpet or what you're doing there. That right. moment is like that little like Bodhi tree moment for the Buddha, you know, that that's just before the enlightenment happens, but you have to get that mixed up and leave behind all logic. So sonically, what does that experience sound like? You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah, it's great to listen to that record in conjunction with the forthcoming Grails as well, right? Where you're also playing with all sorts of cool stuff, you know? I mean, to me, it feels like that, juxtapos- that juxtaposing that you're doing is really very interesting to me. And I feel like you're playing with tones that would absolutely have been considered sort of forbidden as i mean what was what were your what was your take like you're a big like beat head right so you love hip hop stuff you love electronic i'm sure you had essentially a front row seat as a fan of that kind of music to the way that so much of this music that was previously disregarded as very uncool you know new age and all of that stuff um as that stuff became more and more embraced and i wonder if you feel like there's any you know do, do you if, if if you feel like there's a reason why people are turning back to that kind of music that goes beyond simply they heard it on like youtube and it sounded cool you know what i mean yeah i think i think that culture now as just sort of like a baseline um just just mainstream culture is really starting to catch up with like a lot of the things that underground culture was was sort of pushing and pioneering in a in an inevitable way so that's a very complex uh i mean i could write a thesis on this but like basically sure um i think that there were things that we were doing um to take back the power to kind of draw reference to the the dawn of selfish music which is just another idea i like to push but like there was a lot of things we were doing to take back the power um from the system it yeah. say say in the 80s with like you know when when young marble giants you you hear some band like that and you're like this is not even like they're not trying to impress you at all like they're this is just completely raw like unadorned you know like music we we created this space in the underground where we could be in extremely uh uninhibited you know if you're talking about the slits or like the, there's so many flashpoints back then where people like or or right. like Reagan youth just reacting against that Reagan atmosphere and just kind of creating this bratty circle jerks you know like creating this bratty 
complete ultra license. You know, like we we had as an underground, we had to push those walls back, you know, and now you fast forward to now and like a lot of these things are kind of just like inevitabilities. Like they're just like home recording is just something like any old fucking loser does. You know, it's like not right. it's not a radical thing. It's just what like any dude does in a coffee shop now. So No, th- absolutely. Yeah, I think that's been a really long curve uh getting to this place. And now that we're here, it's missing a little bit of the uh the tension that that bore it you know that the like i look back at the reagan era and i think that 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 level of dissatisfaction that that the underground had that created these institutions as we know it um that level of dissatisfaction was so fueling and and i think it pushed us out of our homes i think kids ran away from fucking home and we created the germs and we created, you know, these places you could go to be yourself, you know, like yeah. if you, if you were gay, you had to go far the fuck away. You know what I mean? Like you right. had to go be in a safer environment. And so that kind of rocket fuel that, that pushed you away from mainstream culture ended up creating these kind of environments, these institutions. I don't, if we have those institutions now, if you have the four track now, but you don't have the frustration and you don't have that fuel and you don't have that kind of like anger that's that's making you need to find that that subculture and it's just all there right in front of you, then you're not going to have the thing that created the thing that we love so much. You know what I mean? I think that those kids will create something that's unrecognizable, you know, that'll be cool and interesting. Um, but when you're playing with those old forms, yeah, th- then then you run the risk of sort of like you're, you're tapping into a, a, a an exhausted source almost. Do you, is that is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, I think I think it's a right. Everybody's kind of holding their breath and waiting for a leader to kind of like (laughs) a a new leader to pop up and like guide the way, you know what I mean? And and like, like, well, yeah. I, and I think we want music that addresses the weirdness of the world in a way that doesn't feel, um, trite or like it's already been said, you know, we're experiencing stuff now that is novel and strange and we don't know necessarily how to make sense of it, you know? So I think that we do want art that will do that, but I do get the sense of everybody waiting on something, you know, for sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong like with these dynamics that I'm describing. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just reporting them. It, it, (laughs) It feels like, it feels like the road I'm trying to decide all the time. Like it feels like the road from like, dissension dissent to like the commodification of dissent is so much faster you know like like it for sure it flips into culture so much quicker that now i can understand why some people and some young people are kind of like why try do you know what i mean because it's like yeah it just gets sucked up into the vacuum of of the algorithms you know no absolutely absolutely 
Well, something that I wanted to touch on before we wrap up, though, was that, so you joined Ohm, it, was it 2009 when you joined? You joined with the record God is Good? I think 2009 might have been when it came out, but I joined gotcha. maybe more like early 2008, and, and there was a sub-pop single, and then some, there was a lot of touring, and then we kind of just yeah. landed at Albini's in 2008, I imagine, and then that record came out in 2009, yeah. You know, looking back, I feel like that's an interesting group to talk about in regards to some of what you were saying about the way everything is so Abletoned out, and the way everything is lined up and so sort of locked to a grid you know all the times that i've seen ohm um i've i've definitely thought that like this is a group that's using the sort of idioms of rock music and drone and stoner metal and all that stuff sort of using those idioms but nonetheless creating like a kind of sacred music and you know to me that's maybe one quality of sacred music is that sort of access to deep time that trance and minimalistic repetition can sort of lead you to. So I just wanted to know, you know, how often or what, what, what you made of playing or playing with them. Like, what is it that is most exciting to you about getting on stage with that group in regards to some of what we're dancing around this conversation? Um, my job is a little bit different in that band, but, um, like I'm definitely not like splicing up, you know, old samples and stuff in, in that, sure. but, <laughs> but, um, but I do appreciate, yeah. Like what you're saying about standing in the audience and, and watching that particular band has this, I mean, like not, not unlike what, what I saw in Wilco, just like a special relationship with the audience. Uh, we're given uh, a sort of real estate that it's pretty unusual to use. Right. And, um, I think when I first saw Ohm and Grails used to tour with Ohm, I think, I think my my first reaction was, "Holy shit!" Like real underground music, like still exists. Because when I first heard Ohm, I was on a a boat in in the UK, and I and f from far away, I almost thought it was Spaceman Three. And you know, sure. every, everyone knows Spaceman Three, like back in the day changed your shit it changed your fucking shit you know like nobody knew that you could just do that and so when you heard it and it hit you you're like oh my god the 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 dream is alive like the the this idealism is really real and when i first heard him and i and we would tour with them there's just nights where i was just watching it and thinking man it's kind of like i'm back at the cat's cradle in 1990 sitting on stage with fugazi like as a little yeah. boy like i saw i saw this thing take off you know and 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 it really it's in my dna i was born of this family you know and and when i saw him i was like i was like holy shit it's it's still alive you know and then you know a couple of years later i joined the band and that was just you know, great, great privilege and, and amazing luck that, that I met Al and we, we sort of became so close, but, but um, yeah, I think, I think that that kind of real estate, once it's developed, if it's dead moon 
is a, is a great example of a band that just gets a kind of real estate that psychologically there's a type of freedom that, that, that a band like that is given. And, and when you can run with it, you better run fucking hard because society doesn't generally give you these spaces. And, and I think that the various, you know, bikini kills or like, like, you know, legendary underground bands that changed people's minds. Um, those are the potent institutions that we're holding our breath, waiting to see more of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's beautifully put. And that idea of dropping out of the mainstream and plugging into a community and finding others who sort of, who, who share your ethos or who, at least give you the space to do your thing, you know, and you give them the space to do their thing. To me, that's a big part of what you're what you're talking about is definitely what people are missing right now uh, in this time of being connected mostly through ones and zeros, or often that's the way we're connected. So in its own way, I feel like what your podcast does also, in addition to your to your musical work, is carve out a space online for the kind of weirdness and ambiguity that you were talking about earlier. Because that sense of mystery really is such a big part of how we all get drawn into this art. And uh, yeah, Emil, it's been really great hanging out and chatting with you about all of this stuff. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, yeah, anytime. Hopefully we, we see each other in, in person and continue the label mate um, love affair thanks for listening to Aquarium Drunker Transmissions I'm Jason P. Woodbury I produce, write, and host the show Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton our music is by Frank Maston, drawn from his extensive discography of library music find more by visiting maston.bandcamp.com that's m-a-s-t-o-n.bandcamp.com our executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard's founder, Justin Gage. Don't miss his radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU Channel 35 at 7 p.m. Pacific Time each and every Wednesday. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. Visit the TalkHouse for more interviews, fascinating reads, and podcasts. Of course, you can find Drifter's Sympathy with Emil Amos over there. And you'll find, of course, in our feed, the No Way Out oral history of Sunburn Hand of the Man, curated and produced by J. Kelly Davis, with some help from the great folks at Three Loved Records and presented by Aquarium Drunkard and Talkhouse. We will be back soon. Next week on the show, Jarvis Tarvenier of Woods. It's a great ramble. Uh, I'm so psyched to be able to have hooked up with Jarvis to record it. And I hope you will come back and join us. But for now, be well. This transmission is concluded.